good to be back with you again today and look forward to having you join with us in the flesh next week as we return to worship here at 6801 Wesley Street on May the 24th. And so it has been just a kind of a wild time right over the last couple of months as we've been primarily engaging in online worship with you and your family. And so, so excited and looking forward to that. You're going to get an email from the church uh, tomorrow afternoon that kind of lays out some guidelines for what that service is going to look like. And so be looking for that email. This morning we're in uh, Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to be focused on verses 8 through 10. And so if you have your Bible at home, the verses will be on the screen for you this morning. We're in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. The Apostle Paul writes and says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Let me pray for us once again. Father, we thank you that your word is clear. We thank you, God, that your word is convicting. God, I thank you that we have opportunity today to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so where this morning we encounter elements of our lives that are living in direct contradiction to your word, I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, will call us to submit to you. And God, as we encounter this morning elements where we're believing lies of this world, God, I pray that you would set us free in those things. God, would you rule and reign in our hearts? Would you bring your spirit? And would you cause yourself to be worshipped as we continue in this time and direct our thoughts, our attentions, and seek to place our affections in submission to you? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. One of the things you would have noticed, uh, it, if you were to kind of read 6 through 10 in one swath, is that Paul really takes 6 and 7, and he uses those to establish uh, kind of a, a positive outlook. You remember he said, uh, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walked in him. You've been rooted in him. You're being built in him. You're being established in the faith. And so he's made this argument in 6 and 7. Listen, there's nothing deficient in you. You just need to continue to walk out your faith faithfully. You just need to continue to do this day in and day out. But what he does in 8 through 10 is he recognizes that in the midst of kind of walking out our faith, in the midst of living out these things, that there comes opportunity for us to be distracted, that there comes opportunity for the enemy to seek to lead us astray. And that's really what he focuses here on in 8 through 10. Notice he opens it up and he says, See to it that no one takes you captive. It's so incredibly important that we recognize the continued necessity of our vigilance in walking out our faith carefully. And so he uses this, this commonplace verb and says, see. Now, for a number of years, when we first moved into our house, our, our builder had constructed a, a death trap to get you into the bonus room. And so whenever we'd have people over that weren't in our house all the time, we'd say, listen, you need to look out for, you need to be careful for that first two or three steps coming out of the room because when you, when you walked up into the room, you could clearly see them. And you could see that if you were hugging this wall, that there was no step. It was just kind of a cliff face right there. And you got like a two-inch toehold for maybe like a foot and a half out. So it's like scaling the Himalayas. Ah, I'm going to make it to the bonus room. And so we recognize in the midst of this when people would come over and say, look out for those steps. 
But you know, one of the funny things is that sometimes our family would be up there and we'd be straightening stuff and moving stuff around and storing stuff we didn't need for our, our great-grandchildren to, to, to say, why did they ever keep this? Why were they hoarders? And so we had this stuff up there and, and we're busy and we're working and we're walking and then all of a sudden we start to walk downstairs and BAM! We didn't see it! We didn't see it. We knew it was there all along, but we weren't looking for it. So it came to that, that cliff face, and we just found ourselves leaning up against the wall because we had fallen off our own stairs. The Christian life in the midst of living it requires constant discipline. There are so many things that the enemy would use that are relatively innocuous. They are they're harmless. But he's going to use these things that are seemingly harmless. He's going to use these things that you'd otherwise be disinterested in. He's going to use them to lay a hook in your heart and pull you away. Look at how Paul describes it for those there in Colossae. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now this isn't primarily an opportunity to kind of rant and, and rave on academia or pursuits of education. This isn't at all what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about the fact that people were coming in and they were putting forth really this understanding that you have a little bit of Judaism here and a little bit of paganism here. And when you put them together, you have a proper approach to God. You have this proper approach whereby you might come to know him. And he goes on to describe it starting in verse 16 of chapter 2. He says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or to regard a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so what the heretics were doing there, what those who would seek to take them captive, to take their minds captive, to take their hearts captive were doing, was coming up and using what he described in verse 4 as plausible arguments. They would take things common to their experience and they say, see here, believe in this and follow this, and by this avenue you might come to rightly understand who God is. But when we, when we, when we have this understanding, then on, on the one hand we see the true gospel, on the other hand we see the false gospel, we recognize that in the true gospel, this is exactly what Paul says about it. Look back at verse 5 in chapter 1. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So we come to understand that the gospel put forward rightly is truth, and the gospel perverted and twisted and contorted is false. It is deceitful it is this empty deceit there's no substance to it there's no basis in it but it leads a terrific number of people astray and this is what paul asked them to look out for we recognize that in the true gospel that there is light in fact paul has described their journey back in chapter 1 and verse 13 speaking of jesus he says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son and so what we see in the midst of this is where uh, good-sounding arguments come along and they seek to lead us from living and dwelling in light. And the Bible tells us that God is light. And in him, according to 1 John, there is no darkness. Move this movement from light to darkness. The gospel has made us alive, but these entrapments, this move towards being enslaved, would seek, us, seek to move us into being dead. The book of Ephesians, Paul described it summarily, starting at verse 4, moving into verse 5 of chapter 2 in the book of Ephesians. Paul wrote and says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved. 
God has affected this cosmic movement of our hearts, this, this, this transference, this altering of our destination for all eternity. He's moved us from being formerly dead people, spiritually dead people, necrotic and rotting and loving it. And he's made us alive. And what this philosophy, what this empty deceit seeks to do is to lead us astray. It looks to enslave us once again. Paul, in writing to the church in Galatia, who is struggling in some sense with some of these same issues and these same realities, put forward this question to them again of whether or not they wanted to once again move from being free people to being an, an enslaved people. He said in chapter 5 and verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand th firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There's so many things over the course of our life that would seek to distract us and seek to lead us into following something other than Jesus. But Paul says for those there in Colossae, that the arguments being employed and being argued against them was according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and in primarily not in accordance with Christ, not according to Christ. So he said that they're according to human tradition. Now this is something that, that Jesus dealt with a great deal in the midst of his ministry. You remember the Pharisees and the scribes would come up to Jesus and they would say, listen, what, what, what exactly is wrong with your disciples? Why don't they follow the traditions? Now what's he talking about there? Essentially what he's talking about is you have the law given by Moses and then you have all this interpretation that comes to follow it. And what they began to see is that men and women began to follow that tradition. They began to follow uh, this understanding of, yeah, but this is how we actually apply this. Instead of applying, instead of following the heart of what the law says. The prophet, prophet Isaiah had this stunning rebuke and offered this stunning commentary over this exact thing. He writes in Isaiah 29 and verse 13, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And I don't know about you, but Isaiah just cuts me to the quick. It's understanding that I could be saying the right things. I could even in some sense be doing the right things, but my heart would be so incredibly far from the Lord. Now these people who are engaged in this philosophy and this empty deceit, they don't really care. They're not bothered by this reality. They're not bothered by this possibility. They want to see you merely articulate the right things at the right times and do the right things at the right times. Now look at what he goes on to say in Isaiah. Their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. It's not a heart response to the Lord. Just seeing this is what right behavior looks like, and I'm going to emulate that. This is what right behavior looks like, and I'm just going to copy that, and I'm just going to do that, because I think this is what satisfies, this is what placates the people around me. I think this is right, so I'm just going to step in and do it. Whereby philosophy and empty deceit might be satisfied, this is not a heart, ultimately, that honors the Lord. He says it's according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, within this conception of things, they had this way of describing the realities of life and so in 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 some sense when they use this idea of the elemental spirits of the world they're just talking about the basic building blocks of life now this phrase came to me much uh, later to, start to describe just kind of the abcs of a thing so this is how something operates this is how something works but but what we see here is is similar to what paul described in galatians chapter 4 and verse 9 he says see now that you have come to know god 
or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? When we find ourselves, or when they found themselves, rather, engaging in doing things that just absolutely made sense to their culture. They absolutely made sense to their culture. There were things that people would look at and say, yeah, absolutely, I can totally see that. I, and in fact, I would, I would argue against a person who wouldn't lead their life, live their life in this way. And this is what the Christians found, them, found themselves facing. There are those who said, look, you just have to engage and do these things. It doesn't really matter where your heart is. Don't worry about it. And there were those coming up to them and arguing and saying, your life needs to look just like the lives of everybody else. You need to base your life on this, this false belief set. You need to base your life on this false reality that the pagans were living. And then he says, finally, in non-accordance with Christ. What about us? You know, as I kind of thought about these things, and I really began to wrangle with the question of, what are things that primarily that I observe over and over and over again lead Christians astray? Things that we just kind of walk blindly into. And there's no shortage of these, and this certainly isn't an exhaustive list. But one of the things, time and again, I think you'll see, and, and certainly I've observed, that we find people moving in and being held captive by, is the idea somewhere along their life that they no longer need to exercise faith. Some, somewhere along the line, somewhere along the midst of leading this Christian life, somewhere among, along this walk, they begin to say, listen, I've got this all under control Faith really seems to be this unnecessary encumbrance. Faith really seems to be this unnecessary difficulty that is being placed upon me, and they seek to live their life abiding by rationality. They seek to live their life by abiding by good reason. They seek to live their life abiding by just kind of common sense wisdom. And so they've taken faith, and they said, listen, faith might have been important in the beginning, but faith is not necessary over the way that I live my life. Well, we recognize that this fails on any number of levels. Faith is the very heart blood of Christianity. The author to the Hebrews said this in Hebrews 11 and chapter, uh, chapter 11 and verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is not an additional something added to Christianity. Faith is essential for Christianity. Faith is essential for right relationship with God. One of the things, unfortunately, we see people, our teenagers, we see our senior adults, we see people at all various stages and walks of life led astray by is that they have jettisoned faith. And they bought into this belief set that faith is no longer necessary. Another one of the ideas I think that we find people being taken captive by is kind of described as being self-directed autonomy. Self-directed autonomy. Now, this is something that, that I see over and over again, and, and probably I'm, I'm prejudiced to see this by nature of my vocation, but it's the understanding that I don't, I don't really need anybody else. I don't need a group of people. I don't need people holding me accountable. I don't need to have any investment in the lives of others. It, it, it's really just me, and, and I'm totally okay with that. I'm totally fine with that. You see, their understanding, and perhaps some of us, our understanding currently or formally exists in such a way that it says, I'm all that matters. You've completely misunderstood what Christianity is. We together, corporately, collectively, we comprise the body. It is necessary, it is essential, 
that we walk together. It is necessary. It is essential that we struggle together. It is necessary. It is essential that when I fail, there's one to lift me up. It is necessary. It is essential that we do this together. There's no place within Christianity for self-directed autonomy. What we see in Christianity is enmeshed belief together. We struggle together. We succeed together. We collectively submit ourselves together to Christ who is the head. None of us get to take that place. And none of us get to decide that we don't need other people. Again, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, and verse 24, he says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. It's at least part of our responsibility to be able to look at the other people and, and consider the people in, in, in this facet of our life and, and in that facet of our life and in our work and in our home and in our personal interactions. How can I, recognizing that they are Christians, see them more engaged in serving Jesus? And to allow them that same freedom to speak into your life and say, how can I be, be more invested in seeing Matt serve Jesus more faithfully? This is part of the beauty of it, that we're called to do this together. I think probably the most insidious way that we find this over and over and over again, this is going to be difficult for some of us, is this understanding of nostalgic faith. Nostalgic faith. The thing we have set our hope on, the thing that we have set our identity on, is returning our country to some form of fashion of 1950s Americana. This is all of our belief this is the majority of our conversation if you were to search through our social media feeds you'll find that everything we say and the, the the intent of kind of where we push is is seeking to have this be the return for where we go and quietly subtly bit by bit what we've seen and what will happen is that the gospel loses its mooring from your heart that America comes up and it takes its place there and you'll make your decisions, you'll make your engagements, you'll offer your arguments on the basis of making this and your vision of what this country should look like supreme. And it will take you captive. Now listen, Christians should be involved in the political process, we should vote, we should advocate, we should be engaged in this, but it is not our hope. We don't seek to return our country to a form, a fashion of what it used to be. We are just passing through. We have set our hope on a place we've not known. First Peter says that we are sojourners and aliens. We await the return of Jesus, not the hope of an elected official. I hope you hear that. I hope more than you just hearing that, I hope you move past your anger and your frustration to a belief and understanding of the susceptibility for your heart to be lured into believing that this is the greatest thing instead of the gospel being the greatest thing. Listen, the enemy will use whatever lower thing that you are susceptible to and he will set your heart on it and he will lead you captive by it. He will sink his hooks in your hopes and your dreams, however good and lead you to make those things ultimate instead of following the gospel and making it ultimate. Look at what he says here in the last point. He says, be sure that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And then he just gives this totality uh, of all statements. He says, not according with Christ. This covers everything for us. And so we recognize that before we post something, before we say something, before we do something, before we think something, 
we ask ourselves fundamentally and first this question, does my thought, action, or behavior honor the Lord Jesus Christ? If I were to stand before him and he were to ask me, uh, friend, how, how could you say that this honors me? And I'd say, well, listen, hold on. It honors you because I'm going to start over here, I'm going to build this understanding of whatever, and then I'm going to come over here, and then I'm going to come back, and then I'm going to hook back around, and then I'm going to land on the gospel, I'm going to Jesus juke you, next thing you know, Jesus, the people I'm arguing with are going to be followers of you. And you think, that is amazing. Self-deluded, but that is amazing. And we need to be governed by the gospel. Governed not by our, our, our understandings of, of what is right, but what is, according, what is in accordance with Christ. Now, this is why Christ gets to be supreme. Look at what he says in 9 and 10. He says, Christ gets to be supreme. We submit all our actions, all our thoughts, all our behaviors to him because Christ is the one whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now this is similar to what Paul had written previously in chapter 1 and verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, he said he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the fullness of all, has the whole fullness of deity dwelling within him bodily. In Jesus, we see a picture of God. Now, primarily, Paul wrote this to combat those within the community in Colossae who said, listen, we can see that Jesus is important. We can see that Jesus is special. However, we still feel like there's something lacking. We still feel like perhaps there's something uh, incomplete in this Jesus. And so Paul just kind of throws all that out and he says, that's, 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 that's preposterous. In Jesus, there is no part of the Godhead not visible. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so while they're resonating on that and really thinking through this and thinking through all the various implications of this, Paul swings right back around and he brings them such an incredible rush of joy and delight. Look at what he says here in verse 10. He says, and you have been filled in him. And you have been filled in him. This is so similar to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 3 and 17. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. There's this understanding that the, the God of the universe who indwells Christ fully takes up residence in you. Up residence in you. This is one of these things that just completely blows me away. It completely devastates all my pursuits of selfishness. It devastates and awakens me to all of my sinfulness. That the Creator God of the universe has filled all of my needs. This is primarily what he's making an argument and a point of here. He says, You have been filled in Him. Now, check this out. This is the cool thing that Paul's saying here. Is at some point in the past when you came to know God through Jesus, that God filled you. So that whatever spiritual needs that you might have in the future are already met and available to have filled in Jesus. Now this says a couple of things to us. One of the things I think it offers a corrective for is that oftentimes what we find is that you and I are engaged primarily in having our physical needs met. It, it, it tends to be the first thing that we look for, right? Because we experience hunger, we experience cold. 
We experience uh, the effects of the elements. And so we are conditioned to recognize the, the grave importance of our physical needs. But as Christians, we recognize that the most important need that you or I could ever have is our spiritual need and our spiritual condition. So in these moments when we feel far from the Lord, in these moments when we feel wayward, in these moments when we feel disconnected, we're reminded of this truth here that we have already been filled in him, and this filling is going on even now, and this filling continues on into the future. God is not done with you. This is such an incredibly freeing word. To those who would have received this, and, and, and Paul says, Back in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. There are those in our hearing and those in their reading who would have said, man, I've already been taken captive. I've already set my heart on these things. I've already set my heart on this way of living. I've already set everything I am on this. And he comes to them and he says, you have been filled in him. In his grace, he calls you back. In his mercy, he restores you. In his compassion, he reminds you of how he took you from darkness, dead, wandering away, and he drew you into light, and he gave you a heart that beats for him and for him alone. God, in his grace and his mercy, restores you, and it is Christ who is the head of all rule and authority. All those things we might seem, seek to set our hopes, dreams, and affections on, Christ is better than those things. Christ is better than those things. He reigns supreme over those things. In the next weeks, we're going to have an opportunity to be led astray by any number of things, any number of ideologies, and you can already see it happening. Competing narratives and ideologies, people saying you're a moron if you wear a mask, people saying you're an idiot if you don't wear a mask, People saying, if you don't social distance, you're not my friend. People who've been hugging since this whole thing started and won't quit. And so any number of ideologies and narratives and people seeking to establish and corner the market on where truth is. Christian, our primary responsibility, our primary responsibility is to honor and serve the Lord and seek to save the lost. We can be united on this. We can disagree graciously lovingly, compassionately about any number of things. There are some people that attend this church that love cats and they're still allowed to come. You know, there are people in this church that when I told them, when I trapped that armadillo, I was going to kill it. They said, if you trap it, call me, I'll bring it to you. And they're still allowed to come. Hold on. Yes, they are still allowed to come. There was an appeal process, but ultimately I lost. And we can disagree on any number, any number of things. But the God of the universe unites us around the gospel in submission to Jesus. Amen. Let us be passionate about the gospel. Let us be passionate about extending the gospel. And let us be frequent in extending grace and mercy with those who happen to come down in a different opinion than we do. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your son Jesus. In him we have life. In him we have forgiveness. Father, we pray for any who have not yet submitted themselves to Jesus, come to know him.
God, that they would take opportunity to reach out to one of our elders or to send a message. Or they would just comment and say prayer. God, that in these moments that they would be quick to reach out, to respond to your invitation of salvation. God, we thank you for your goodness, for your son, for this opportunity we have had to worship him and to reflect upon his word. And we submit these things to you in his name. Amen.